All right. Well, let's get started. Thank you, everybody, so much for joining us. This is the Free Domain Radio Sunday Von Sunday Show. This fine day, the 20th of September, 2009. I hope you're doing just excellently. This is a call-in show. It's really all about you, the fine and dandy listener. And if you want to call in to have a chat, you can either um, uh, put your Skype Addy into the chat window, or uh, you can call 347-633-9636 to talk philosophy, whatever is on your mind about the meaning of life and death and everything in between. And uh, I'm going to just to take a pause to give people a chance to dial in to talk about philosophy, and uh, we'll wait and see if people are queued up. And if not, no problem. I have an opening Chattelfest intro, which I can definitely deploy if uh, if need be. So uh, we'll just put that number out there again. You can just dial into chat. 347-633-9636. To talk about uh, philosophy, we talk about economics, uh, self-knowledge, uh, family, whatever is on your mind that uh, rational empirical principles can help you out with. And I would say there should be almost nothing on your mind uh, that rational uh, principles cannot uh, help you out with, except perhaps Heidi Montag in a bunny suit, which uh, obviously is in a class all on its own. So the number once again, 347-633-9636. And uh, we'll just wait for a second there. I did get an invite to speak uh, in Paris, of all places, not Paris, Texas, nor Paris, Ontario, but in fact, the real deal, the home of the baguettes and waiters who appear that they're peeing on you from a great height. Yes, that would be Paris, France. But unfortunately, they had no money to pay me. And uh, much though I enjoy a charity, since I am a charity, uh, I just couldn't see how I could swing it. Uh, so unfortunately, that is not uh, going ahead. Uh, that having been said, I did have a debate uh, yesterday on the Peter Mac show with a bona fide diet in the world objectivist. And we had a cordial, though inevitably slightly frustrating conversation. I must say, if you're going to debate and, and you know, call me uh, an anal debater, toilet train to gunpoint, but I really do believe that if you're going to debate with someone about a particular topic, it's really, really important to uh, to read up uh, on that topic. I mean, if you're going to debate me, I've got, you know, free books out there. I mean, when I was debate, when I prepare for debates, I literally will spend days preparing for a debate. I didn't so much with the objectivist because I spent 20 years being an objectivist. So I think I can talk about that fairly fluently or fluidly. But uh, when I was uh, going to debate Michael Badnarik, I spent like a week uh, reading up on the Constitution, reading Michael Bagnarek's books. And uh, I, th I just think it's really, really important. It's kind of it's kind of around respect, not so much for me, but respect for the audience. Uh, because if all you come to a debate with an anarchist is, uh, you know, fear scenarios of, uh, uh, you know, motorcycle gangs taking over society and so on, uh, that's not really a debate. That's more like campfire ghost stories, not really an intellectual pursuit. So that's just my suggestion, and I'm not really going to get involved in more debates with people who don't seem to have read it. You don't have to read me. It's not like I'm any kind of be-all and end-all as far as voluntarism goes, but, you know, read up on some Rothbard or, or some Bakunin or Frederick Bastiat's The Laws is not a bad place to go. Uh, you can read up on um, The Constitution of no, no Authority or just about anything else by Lysandra Spooner. Um, lots and lots of things uh, that you can read that are uh, critical of status philosophies. And if you're going to debate somebody who's critical of status philosophies, I think it's usually... Uh, a good idea. This just comes from my own paranoid, perhaps, days in the business world, where I just would not go to a meeting without a significant amount of preparation. I wouldn't go and present to a client without reading up a good deal about his or her business environment and hopefully having a few 
minorly intelligent things to say. That's perhaps just my fetish, but uh, it is my strong suggestion if you're going to get involved in debates to, uh, to read. And I also think this is just a general principle. I'm trying to remember. It was, um, oh yeah, talk about a pairing of unlikely minds. It was um, Sean Hannity and Christopher Hitchens. Uh, on Fox News, this is when Christopher Hitchens was out uh, uh, pimping God is Not Great, which is not a bad book, in my opinion. It's worth uh, reading. I mean, he's very erudite. He reads it himself, and he has this annoying, slightly muttery, up-and-down volume thing, but you can always normalize that, of course. And um, uh, Sean Hannity was just saying some stuff that was just nonsensical, and Christopher Hitchens said, you know, in that plummy British accent, which I won't even really try to reproduce here, he's like, well, you know, strike me as a man who's never read a position contrary to his own beliefs or something like that. And uh, Kennedy was like, oh, no, I've read all of them, <laughs> which I thought was just a ridiculous thing to say. But uh, nonetheless, uh, I, I really do strongly suggest that it's so, so, so important to read positions that are highly critical of your own, certainly as um, a philosopher to, to the degree that you could call me that. Um, I get a huge amount of, of criticism of my positions and my beliefs, a good deal of which is uninformed, but a good deal of which is very intelligent and very helpful and very perceptive. When you hold a position that is contrary to the majority uh, position, uh, and that doesn't mean mainstream media, that means like if you're a libertarian, you just hang out with other libertarians and read libertarian books. I still think it's really, really important to read positions that are critical of your, uh, your position as a whole. Uh, I mean, for two reasons. One is that you could be wrong about something, and it's really important to have that self-criticism in whatever it is that you're doing. And number two, um, when you're debating with people, it's really good to know their arguments, to know where they're going to come from and what arguments they're going to make so that you can effectively counter them. So I think the more um, the more different or the more unusual your position in society is, the more you need to read uh, um, uh, positions that are critical uh, of, of your position. And uh, I just think that's a generally a really, really good idea. And so if you're going to debate someone, read uh, a lot about where they're coming from and uh, where, their, uh, uh, where their biases and prejudice or good arguments are going to be so that you can either incorporate them or find arguments against them. It really does, um, you know, like objectivists, one of the things that I would say about objectivists as a whole is that they kind of come out of this tradition that is highly respectful, if not stalkerly like worshipful of American foreign policy. And this, of course, comes out of uh, Ayn Rand directly. I mean, she fled Russia and uh, found a new and uh, obviously very successful uh, influential life in America and had a huge amount of, of affection uh, and love for America, which uh, I, I certainly, I think you should love the values, not the rocks or you know, necessarily the people, but you should love the values that are virtuous and true and good. But one of the things that has uh, occurred or has come out of that is uh, out of the, the Randian, obviously, foundations of objectivism has been a very, very strong support for highly aggressive U.S. foreign policy and a lack of criticism of, uh, of imperialism. And as I've mentioned before, um, there have been, even if you exclude the millions of uh, Native Americans who were killed uh, to make way for the, um, the uh, American settlers, uh, the, the, uh, upwards of 30 million deaths have been caused by U.S. foreign imperialism. And I think it's really important to be critical, to read uh, positions that are very critical of U.S. foreign policy, because uh, certainly for you know many years, uh, I sort of didn't look into that stuff very much for a variety of reasons. It really wasn't something I debated much. And when I did begin to read into the truth about American imperialism, uh, particularly if you look at things like the Philippines or Guatemala or um, uh, Cuba uh, or uh, the overthrow of uh, Allende 
uh, and his replacement with uh, Pinochet in Argentina. And you can read some Naomi uh, Klein. Uh, Noam Chomsky is a fantastic person to to read, to criticize. He's a libertarian socialist, as he claims, which to me is uh, like being an up and down black and white person. But uh, nonetheless, he is, uh, his criticisms of American foreign policy are really, really well worth reading. It's very important to get the view from outside the biosphere that you live in, right? To, to, to look at America, not from the view from the inside, from the founding fathers and, and all of that, to, which to me is significant propaganda, but to look from, from the outside, right? I mean, I grew up with this worshipful view of um, British involvement in the Second World War, and I grew up with this worshipful view of the white man's burden called the British Empire to civilize the savage tribes of the world. And when you start to read positions critical of things like the British Empire and British involvement in the Second World War and the First World War, you begin to see a view from the other side. And I think seeing that view from the other side is very important to have a well-rounded, um, sophisticated, uh, sometimes ambivalent, but deep and rich experience of history to look at. Uh, I mean, the classic example in modern American history is to look at 9-11, obviously from the perspective of the victims in the towers and other places, but also to look at it from uh, the, the Muslim world and what the Muslim world is trying to do, which, of course, is to bring down the American empire through economic uh, through drawing it into economically destructive wars, which is, of course, what America trained the radical Muslims to do with regards to Russia in, yes, you guessed it, Afghanistan itself. So to, to look at things from both perspectives is really, really important. Uh, stepping into somebody else's viewpoint in no way diminishes your own capacity to process and experience the truth. I would argue that it really strongly, strongly, strongly enhances your, your um, appreciation of and capacity to accept the truth, because you don't want to be defensive against particular positions, um, like you don't want to dismiss them. I think you want to try and incorporate them, and you want to try to uh, to absorb them, so that uh, you can uh, really get around, you know, a 360 degree view of uh, of the truth, rather than just you know one perspective. And I don't read this person because they're biased, or I don't read this person because whatever, right? You know, read. I mean, I've read the whole Bible. I've taken courses on the history of, of Christianity. Uh, and Judaism, and uh, I have read a huge amount that is critical of, of uh, you know, laissez-faire, free market capitalism, I think we all have, but really sophisticated criticisms. Uh, I've taken entire courses on the philosophy of statist legal institutions, and I'm going to bore you with the whole details of my education, but I've read a lot, right? So people who read a lot of Rand maybe don't read a lot of Kant, because, you know, Rand has this antipathy towards Kant, and you say, well, uh, I'm not, you know, that's enough for me or whatever, but I think it's really important to read Kant and to read about the categorical imperative and to read about his approach to philosophy, to read Plato uh, and to to look at where, you know, what he was trying to do, uh, what he was trying to achieve, why he was trying to achieve that and where his failures and mistakes were. Uh, so that's just sort of my suggestion. I think it's really important if you're an objectivist to read Murray Rothbard. I think if you're an anarchist, it's really important to read Rand. I think if you are, um, you know, pro um uh, sort of U.S., the golden age of U.S. history, sort of the first 50 or 60 years, you could say, from the founding of the Republic to uh, Lincoln's uh, initiation of the Civil War or the Civil War, the war between the states, whatever you want to call it. There's this golden age. And I think you really want to read positions that are critical of that. Obviously, the positions uh, written by black historians about slavery, uh, feminist historians about the lack of rights for women, historians of childhood about the brutalities of childhood in, in those days and the corruption uh, and, and brutality of the early American state. Uh, I think it's really, really important. You don't just read the Declaration of Independence and a bunch of really patriotic stuff about those golden days of the early republic. 
and uh, not read positions that are critical of that. It doesn't mean that you have to change your opinion about the golden age, though I would certainly suggest remaining open to it. But there is this belief that, you know, if you can find a really good government somewhere in history, then all we have to do is try and get back to that. And I think uh, if you look at just the ideals of the early American Republic, uh, there's a lot there that to me is very admirable. There was a dedication to property rights. There was a rejection of aristocracy. There was an attempt to limit the power of the state, uh, at least on paper through the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, and so on. There was some stuff to be to be admired, and there was some stuff to be intensely despised. Um, so I think that uh, it's really just important to get that 360-degree view, because I don't think you can really form your own opinion unless you're in possession of as many facts as possible. Uh, if you just say, well, Ayn Rand wrote this about the early republic, or Leonard Peikoff, or Binswanger, or whoever it is that you're reading in, in uh, objectivist circles, wrote about the golden age, and that's it, right? Uh, Thomas de Lorenzo, whoever you're reading, uh, writes about this golden age of the early republic. But you really can't make a decision until you hear the other side of the argument, and you read uh, positions that are critical of the golden age of the early republic. It certainly was a shock for me when I began to, d to dive into that. Uh, and I think you will very quickly see when you read these opposing arguments that it is a very simplistic thing to say that there was just this wonderful uh, country uh, in, in early America with some you know, minor flaws, but, you know, and some problems which allowed for the expansion of state power. It's not really the reality uh, of the situation. Uh, there is no good state throughout history. Um, you could make the argument that uh, America, the American government was as big as it possibly could be in the beginning when it had huge debts, uh, so no real money, uh, very little army, uh, and uh, a huge untamed wilderness and very scattered population, no real method of communication. So it was only small because it couldn't be bigger, right? It was as large as it humanly could be given the circumstances, and that always seems to be the case with states. So that's it for my uh, brief, yeah, semi-brief introduction. And um, uh, do we, uh, let me just put that number out again. If you want to call in and talk about anything to do with philosophy or set me straight about American history, I have moral ears. You can call in at 347-633-96. Wait for it. 36-9636, last four digits. Um, Mr. J, do we have anybody tunneling their way through the ether to us? Uh, we do, actually. And uh, before we bring the call on the air, um, you can also use the click to talk feature. And um, how you use that is you just go to blogtalkradio.com and set up an account there. It's free, of course. And uh, once you join in on the uh, chat, um, you can then use the click to talk feature at the top there, uh, providing you have a microphone. And just to remind you, sorry, when we say click to talk, what we mean is that we will only accept Morse code, which will be liberally interpreted by me to be rank praise for my new haircut. What do you think? Isn't that beautiful? All right. Yeah, are, you, are you stood up, by the way? Am I what? Are you sitting down or are you standing? I'm standing, baby. Hmm, that's strange. The video I'm seeing, the, I just see the, um, the red wall. Maybe um, your video's frozen or something. Hey, we had that happen last time. All right, let me try restart again. Well, that'll be gripping. How's that? Let me see. Oh, it's frozen again. It says 24 frames per second, but there's actually no updating whatsoever. Fascinating. Frozen. Somebody says frozen forehead. Don't yeah, yeah, frozen forehead, absolutely. But at least you can see the haircut, and that's really the important thing. He can. He can, and he is welcome to. 
or he can use the click to talk feature seeing as he does have a blog talk account okay let's bring this guy on or lady uh, from a 727 area code you are on the air go ahead excellent hey Stefan this is Chris hey Chris hey, how's it going I, I, oh good I, uh, I didn't hear the whole beginning of the show but I did catch the last piece we talked about and I must agree completely there's I mean my own personal opinions on things you know have changed month to month just depending on what I've been exposed to and there and I'm I definitely try and pursue the most uh, uh, the most differing opinions possible on any subject because that's, you know, the truth lies somewhere in the middle, right? So you, you know, you, you just try and get the extremes and then work your way towards the truth that's most meaningful to you. And yeah, sorry, just to interrupt, but I, I completely agree with you, and uh, I have been guilty of that in the past, of avoiding information that is discomforting to my particular uh, opinions or my particular beliefs. And it does take a fair amount of courage to plunge into the opposite opinion, and you feel like, oh, my God, I'm going to lose my certainty. But I don't think you want the brittle certainty of, of sort of uh, cherry-picked ideology. I think you want the genuine certainty of having absorbed a wide variety of opposing opinions, worked through the facts from first principles, and really come to a rational and empirical conclusion, not by sort of excluding uh, information that is discomforting. Exactly. Well, I do, I do have uh, one thing that, you know, it, it's the uh, why are we here, what are we, you know, what's it all about. I do have that one that I, I kind of feel like it's the one thing you won't, one of the many things you won't get a conclusive answer to. And so, you know, the most we can, the best we can do is kind of approximate it. Uh, and from, from understanding, um, there are, it seems to be there are three answers to the question. I'm sorry, the question is, it's sort of the meaning of life question? Uh, not so much the meaning of life, partially, but, you know, is there a God, is there not a God, what is existence, that, that type thing. And so the three answers are, well, uh, you know, there is a God, definitely, and, so, and some intelligent guy up in the sky, you know, making things happen. Then there is the, the second opinion, well, no, it's, it's highly deterministic. This, this is all just the rules of the game, you know. The rules of the game do impart chaos, but... Um, they, there's nothing inherently special about any of this. It's just the rules of the game. And then this, the, the third opinion, which is deeply rooted in Eastern philosophy, is it's all in your head. You mix it all up. None of this really exists. It's all just kind of a, you know, it, it, it's a think-and-grow-rich idea. You know, as long as you think it, it'll happen, because this is your reality. And so between all three of those, um, it, you know, over time I've become much more... Um, much more appreciative of science and what I can absolutely prove, and so I'm leaning much harder towards determinism. And the reason that I, I, I am, and I, I'm going to submit this, and you may be able to actually put names and theories to it, but, uh, you know, Descartes, there was, a, there was a very large movement for a lot of the philosophers to try and prove the existence of God logically. And Descartes did the best he could, but it didn't go over well enough, because there was no way for them to prove it logically. And so you had this one philosopher at the time, when everybody else was trying to justify an intelligent God, this one philosopher came along and said, what if God isn't intelligent? What if he is entropy? And the idea being, you know, it's kind of trans uh, transcendental, but you've got the Big Bang. Well, we know everything started out as this one, you know, um, almost perfect glob of energy. And 
due to some imperfection in that glob of energy, it exploded. And it all came down to one string touching another string in just the right way, whatever, it sets off the chain reaction. That is the Big Bang. And those imperfections that existed from before turned into the galaxies and the planets that we see today, and even the animals and the bugs and the people. So that, that is determinism. But it also says that... Um, sorry, that tec- sorry. Oh. no, technically that's not determinism, uh, if, I, if I understand what you're saying correctly. Okay. I mean, okay. and you can correct me if I've misunderstood what you're saying, but uh, I think scientists uh, who, who believe in, in our capacity for free will, and I define free will as our capacity to compare our thoughts to an ideal standard, um, and uh, scientists who believe in, in our capacity for free will would accept, I think, everything that you have said so far, um, with, with the caveat that I don't think that the word perfection is uh, appropriate uh, to uh, a pre-conscious universe, to a universe that does not have rational consciousness in it, because there's no such thing as perfect or imperfect, right? It's like saying when the solar system was being formed, was it perfect or not? Well, there would be no external standard or conscious standard or rational standard by which to judge that. Perfection, I think, is a very recent addition to at least our section of the universe, uh, certainly over the last, say, 50 or 75 or 100,000 years, when human beings have developed the capacity to um, to compare their thoughts to an ideal standard, whether that's logic or mathematics or empiricism or science or whatever. So um, uh, I don't think that the fact that before rational consciousness developed, there was uh, a causal series of, uh, uh, of uh, both physical and biological events, I don't think that that would then say that the result of that with rational consciousness in the universe is a now continued to be deterministic universe. Uh, you know, a rock falling down a hill uh, is uh, is a determined event. We can sort of understand, even though we don't know exactly where it's going to land because we don't know all the variables. We don't think that it's choosing to go where it goes. And I would say that prior to rational consciousness, the progress of the universe would fall into the sort of rock falling down a hill thing to the degree to which animals can choose. Uh, who knows, right? That may be a small factor there. But... Uh, since rational consciousness, since our capacity to compare our thoughts to an ideal standard or to reject that ideal standard, which is still just putting another standard in its place, uh, I think that has been the development of uh, uh, a, a sort of limited capacity for choice in the universe. But uh, so I, I don't think that you want to take that same sweep of history for 20 billion years and then have it also include the last 100 or 200,000 years where rational consciousness has developed and the capacity to compare our thoughts to some sort of ideal standard seems to have taken place. Right. Well, I, I, understand, I understand what you're saying. And I think we are talking about the same thing and what that is, this, this, this variant of determinism, and I'm using the term properly and appropriately, but this variant of determinism is the ghost in the machine. And so there's this, uh, you know, I work with computers, and I read a statistic one time that said... Uh, a computer in a server farm will fail once in every 10 years from some gamma ray particle from outer space that came from some galaxy far away. It'll just hit the machine in just the right way to cause a failure. And, it, you know, who can really quantify that? But they were trying to say, you know, sometimes things just happen. You know, you may not be able to explain it, but if you really could get all the variables and all the data, you could see that this machine is so enormously complex that sometimes things just change, but it's all based on the rules. And so that's what I'm saying. You know, even though there is this, 
we we do really feel we have free will, and we can really, you know. I'm sorry, sorry. I just want to make sure I understand because I, I, the problem I have with people who make long speeches, and Lord knows I'm one of them, right? Is that this stuff that I want to make sure I understand before they go on? So I'm sorry for interrupting. So what yep. you're saying is that yep. you don't believe in uh, in free will. You're you're saying that you are more on the determinist side of things. Is that correct? Well, I think that um, determinism gives us the illusion of free will. It makes it feel like we blew my have mind. the ability. So, well, go on. It, it, well, it's like the ghost and the machine. It's, it's the chaos that the machine imparts gives you the illusion. I mean, I, I've, I've done some work with neural networks on computers, and it's enormously deterministic. I mean, the whole thing is... Well, you know, there's no question, sorry, there's no question that computers are deterministic. I don't think anyone's going to argue that. But I think that if you're going to say that human behavior is randomly generated, I think you're going to have a great deal of trouble explaining why human behavior tends to have such significant patterns to it, right? Like, like uh, if you give someone $1,000, they will tend to be generally quite happy. That's not random, right? Or uh, if uh, if you live in... Uh, Uzbekistan or, or some godforsaken hellhole uh, out in, in Eastern Europe or whatever uh, in, in the 18th or 19th uh, or early 20th century that a large majority of the most able people would try and find their way to America or uh, in, in a free market, uh, 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 people tend to, um, uh, you know, work to increase their wealth and, you know, in, in general, parents tend to feed and shelter their children and so on. I think that if you're going to say that it's random in the way that that sort of particle hitting the server once every 10 years go, if it's random, I think you have a, an impossible task of explaining why human behavior tends to be so, uh, so consistent. Try and unify both both of those. Then, what I was trying to say with the whole server, you know, particle making one fail and all that stuff, was that there are things that appear random. There are things that appear. To, there's just no explanation. It must be some voodoo magic in the machine. But in reality, if you can get all the rules and all the variables and you can put them all together, you see it was determined. It was gonna happen. So well, no, you're sorry. You're sorry again. To be precise, you don't know that, right? I mean, this is a theory. You, you say it like it's been proven or certain, but you don't know that, right? Because you haven't been able to prove it. I mean, if you had been able to prove it, then you should stop talking to me and go talk to the Nobel Prize Committee because you would absolutely get the greatest Nobel Prize in history. So you, it's not proven, right, this theory that you have, that if right. you had all the variables, right. you would be able to perfectly predict the outcome of every human interaction. Well, doesn't that, doesn't that seem like, you know, at face value, doesn't it seem like that makes sense? If you're trying no, to it doesn't make sense to me. It doesn't make it doesn't make sense to me at all because it doesn't make sense to me why you would be telling someone that. Why I would be telling somebody if you want to understand the system, you need to quantify the variables. Well, no, because you can't change anyone's mind, so I'm not sure why you'd be talking about it. Well, I wouldn't. I wouldn't hold to that so much because that's determinism to a fault. Determinism doesn't mean you can't change your mind in the sense that the chaos in the system imparts the illusion of free will. You can have rules that are so sophisticated in the system that it applies flexibility within certain boundaries. Right. Okay, so my thought is, you know, just because you can say that, okay, giving somebody $1,000 makes them happy. That seems to be the rules of the system. You know, humans have it in their brain instinctively sometimes that, you know, to be able to gather more resources is something to pursue. You get more dopamine out of it, so people will be happy. And so 
that just kind of follows the rules. Um, the bigger problem I have with the other two, the one that it's all an illusion, it's all in your head, you know, the Eastern philosophy, is, is that immediately if I am going to disagree with that person, that means they're disagreeing with themselves. So that can't hold true. They're, they themselves are imparting doubt in their own theory. And then the second idea that there is definitely some intelligence beyond us that started all this, there's, there's just absolutely no way to prove it. It is 100% a faith-based system. So the default, I feel, is that you have to say, okay, at the very least, there are deterministic rules to how this whole thing went down. I don't know if something intelligent created those rules, but at the very least, we know there are rules. Well, actually, no, and sorry, it's, it's not, uh, and we, we do, I, I, I've gone down the determinist hole six million different ways from Sunday, and I'm, I'm not going to sort of do it again this Sunday, and, and if you want, I've done, I've got debates on YouTube, and, and you can do a search through freedomainradio.com for my views on determinism, and we actually did a determinist debate a couple of uh, weeks ago here, so I, I won't continue, but, but if that's all right, but, but I just wanted to point out that the idea that there's a, a highly complex and sophisticated intelligence at the root or at the beginning of the universe or prior to the universe is not uh, something which is impossible to prove or disprove. It's actually very easy to disprove. The way that you disprove it is that um, in any system, complexity is the result of gradual evolution over time. So obviously our brains are the most complex brains that we have so far discovered uh, in the universe and certainly here on Earth. And the reason that we have this amazing capacity to have these very complex thoughts and it's amazing technology and, and to use the uh, astounding tools of, of reason uh, in the world is because brains have developed from, you know, very, very simple uh, choice gates or mechanisms to highly complex abstract reasoning things. And complexity in living organisms or complexity in consciousness is the result of significant, like, hundreds of millions or even billions of years of, of evolution. To say that there's a mind that is infinitely more complex than human beings that has not needed to be evolved is, uh, is completely irrational and, and counter to every biological principle and development of life and intelligence that we've ever known. So it's, it's not that hard to say, well, there was no God at the beginning of things. There may be a God at the very end of things once you know, evolution has gone through every conceivable iteration in the improvement of, of intelligence and capacities. But for sure, there's no God uh, at the beginning. It's sort of like saying that um, uh, you know, the most uh, intelligent human being uh, was the one who started evolution. Well, no, because evolution has produced the most intelligent human being, whoever that is or whoever that's going to be. But there's no way that, that, that could, there's no way that the effect could have been the cause. Complexity in consciousness is the effect of evolution and the development of complexity in biological matter. It can't be the cause at the very beginning. It can only be the result. Right. Well, there, uh, there was a time where I was, uh, when I was younger, I was in the Mormon faith, and I started to learn about what their theology was about. And some of the, the more exclusive things that you don't get until you've been in for a while is that they believe in an infinity of infinities. So the idea is there isn't one God that started it all. This is the current God for this universe. And when you die, if you're good enough, you get to go start your own universe and be your own God somewhere. So there's the infinity of infinities. And 
the, it, that concept, I, most theologies don't embrace it just because, you know, it's, it, it's kind of hard to go down that rabbit hole. But that could be, you know, a, an adjunct to there is one intelligent creator. And there, he wasn't the first one. There, it, it has been an evolution. And there was one before him. And there was one before him. You know? Yeah, um, there's no proof for I mean, that's all just nonsense superstition, right? There's no proof for any of that. <laughs> Not, no, no proof, no, no science, no, no, no human being who, who would, was trained at all in critical, and I don't mean you, right, who would be trained in rational and critical and empirical thinking would go with, uh, you know, there's an infinity of gods and you get your own universe. I mean, that's just it's crazy, right? I mean, that's like stuff that, you know, uh, big haired Afro guys on the sidewalk mutter into their broken walkie talkies, right? I mean, that's not anything to do with, uh, uh, with philosophy. That's just a bunch of nonsensical and exploitive speculation to to take in, unfortunately, usually the gullible and the young. And again, I'm not putting you into those categories, but you understand that it's nothing to do with philosophy at all. So we do have another caller, if you don't mind, and I certainly do appreciate your thoughts uh, on this. Uh, so we will try to get uh, we will try to get the other caller in. We're just trying to get James back in. To uh, he's getting uh, booted out of uh, ye old Skypey. So let me just see if we can uh, we can get him back in and see if we can dial in the other caller. Do 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 do. Sorry, we'll just try once more, and otherwise I will put in another shorty speechy. We had, for those who are interested, we have had an interesting roundtable discussion that has started up in uh, at free domain radio uh, it was a friday night at uh, 9 p.m eastern standard time but we're trying to do this monthly so we'll post it on the board and i'll put it in twitter and uh, it's an entrepreneurs roundtable conference uh, of course uh, the the philosophy that i really try to espouse is around a personal freedom freedom within your own life and uh, as an ex-entrepreneur actually not even ex i'm still an entrepreneur just in this crazy philosophy world um i found it very very liberating to, to be my own boss. And um, because then, you know, I can sexually harass myself and, and not have any problems with it. But uh, if you're interested, I will post this. Uh, let me just get the number of the podcast in case you're interested. Uh, it is people who are either entrepreneurs or interested in it, uh, talking about possibilities and ways to get into the entrepreneurial lifestyle. It is FDR 1458, Entrepreneurs Roundtable number one. FDR 1458. I'll post that later today. And... Um, uh, we will try to uh, to make that a monthly event so the people who are interested in the entrepreneurial lifestyle can uh, we can sort of share ideas and marketing ideas and questions and and comments and help each other to avoid all of the mistakes that I unfortunately made early on in my entrepreneurial career. So if you're interested in that, just check out the Free Domain Radio board and uh, you are welcome to join. Jimmy Jim, are you back? We do have a we do have a caller a caller from area code six three six. You are on the air. Six three six. What are you wearing? Sorry, go on. I am. Uh, I'm wearing a Subcomandante Marcos T-shirt that I'm sure was printed on slave labor made uh, uh, clothing. Uh, so there's the irony for you. This is uh, Rabble Rouser. Oh hi, how's it going? <laughs> Hello. Uh, yes, I I, uh, I did contact you about doing a a more formal. Uh, we'll use the word debate for less a uh, for for a less better word. Critical discourse might be better. I just feel that. Uh, that it's one of the major aspects lacking uh, in the anarchist uh, thought today is the the internal critical discourse. I've I've listened to your debates uh, with non-anarchists or with uh, minarchists or or any other of the the new words that 
that are being applied to, to these strains of, uh, of somewhat radical thought. Uh, but I'd like to see some more critical discourse within the anarchist thought, and, uh, and that's what that was about. I, I'm not necessarily sure that I'm ready to do that today. I have my own show this evening uh, to prepare for. But, so you're calling uh, to tell me that you're not going to debate with me, at least not now. No, no, yes, not now. But I, okay. I do want to mention a few things about what the last caller was saying. Uh, Wait, is this about determinism? Yes, well, about no, the, no, 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 no. I don't want to do determinism anymore. I mean, I'm, I'm sorry. No, no, I'm not. I'm, I'm not arguing for or against determinism. Uh, just the mere scientific aspect of the the God hunt. What uh, the God hunt? What what is that? Well, the God hunt would be the the hunt or the search for the existence or non-existence of a god. Which is meaningless to religion, right? Because religion claims that it already has found a god, and therefore, if it oh, hasn't, and we still have to find it, religion is still completely false, right? Oh, precisely. Absolutely. But that's not to say that religion is necessarily inherently bad for the search for God. Uh, it, it no, no, it's already, religious, people don't, religious people don't search for God because they think they already have it. Like if I, if I have a home and I've driven home, I don't keep driving home because I'm already there. So religious people that's don't search for God. That, they say that, that they already have God. But that's not to say that somebody being introduced to the ideas of religion and the ideas of God does not lead to a deeper thought process that would inherently bring them to the point where they're searching for God outside of the scape of their religion. I'm saying that religion is a human stepping point. It's a stone by which we leaped off. Uh, it's similar to any political thought process. Someone who is uh, considering themselves to be a more highly elevated uh, political consciousness began with a stepping stone of a human construct that they necessarily don't agree with now but began with it as a, as a launching point. No, sorry, so I, I can't agree with you there. Religion is not a launching point. Religion is an aggressive and superstitious and economically exploitive error that is inflicted and terrorized upon children uh, through telling them that they're born evil and will burn in flames forever and so on. A religion is entirely and you know, destructive. And you know, this, you know this because of your experience with religion. If you no, I know this because that religion. is what religion is, not because of my experience with religion, but because that is what is in the Bible and that is what is te taught uh, in churches, not just because of my experience. Okay, so like you're, okay now you're, picking, you're, you're picking a specific religion now. You're picking a specific religion. I want, to, I want to say clearly now that I'm not arguing for the validity of religion as a philosophy. I'm arguing that religion as an idea is not inherently an evil idea nor an inhibiting idea. Okay, what is your definition of religion then? My definition of religion would be a set of traditions and habits formed around the search for or the celebration of a spiritual entity. So you feel that religion is those who say there is no God, let's go looking for one? Um, or there is no God no. that we know of as yet, let's go looking for one? I've let's never heard of such a religion, the, but that conforms let's, to let's your... Look for the under, let's, it's a search for the understanding of God. Now, of course... Just as market, free market, capitalism. Sorry, sorry, no, no, no. Let, let's not go. Let's wait. not go forward. We we have to take this step by step, right? Everybody wants to. Just I am taking this step forward. by step, and no, I'm but comparing I have to it to what other. You're saying step by step. In your definition, you said it's the search for God, and what that means is that a group that says there is no God, there's no evidence for any God, but no. it's you know, let's go I, looking I for a God. The, that I that never would use be the a religion. Search for God. I never used the term search for God. That's a that's a term you applied. I said it's the search for understanding of a god search for the spiritual entity oh search for the spiritual entity means that there is no spiritual entity yet but we're going to go looking it, for one no it means it's a search for the understanding of it 
Well, but that's there is no spiritual entity, and so it's like saying I want to I want to dissect a leprechaun, right? And I'm going to call myself a biologist, right? Because there's no such thing as a leprechaun; you can't dissect it. Because there's no such thing as the spiritual entity. The search for understanding that which does not exist is crazy, right? Well, that's by your definition that there is no spiritual entity, which is no. That's not my definition. There is no spiritual entity. No, it, there, there is no spiritual. There is no spiritual entity in the universe. The entire idea is ludicrous. It is self-contradictory. It is destructive. It creates wars. It causes violence. It is just a terrible error. And of course, in the hands of those who don't understand it, of course, of course, in the hands of in the hands of those who don't understand anything, it can be a terrible and invasive tool. Anything can be, such as capitalism. Capitalism in the hands of those who have absolutely no understanding becomes what capitalism is today. So what is your definition of capitalism? Market, I'm sorry? What is your definition of capitalism, please? Definition of capitalism would be to uh, create, my definition of capitalism is the creation of, of profit from resource. The creation resource, of profit whether it be, from resource. Yes, whether that resource be labor, whether that resource be intelligence, whether that resource be natural resources such as water, land, uh, any of those things, creation of profit from those things. Right. So somebody who uh, somebody who steals your wallet is a capitalist. Is that right? If they turn around and sell it, absolutely. Isn't that what capitalism has done? Okay. So and so there's from, um, from the so common the, good and turned around and profited from them. Right. So so uh, the the communist dictatorship, say under Stalin or Khrushchev or Brezhnev, would be capitalist because the ruling oligarchy were profiting and had their. Uh, their uh, villas on the on the Black Sea and the the Dachau's on the Caspian Sea, they were profiting from uh, the slave labor of the communist hordes. So they would be, uh, although they called themselves communists, they would be capitalists. And in the same way, if somebody uh, puts a drink a drug in your drink and harvests your kidney and sells it on the black market, they're also a capitalist and morally indistinguishable from somebody who produces a voluntary good and service uh, for mutual exchange. Absolutely. Okay, I can't talk to you anymore because you make no sense whatsoever. And I, I'm sorry to say that so bluntly, but uh, you, you, if you're going to use the term capitalist to, to include a communist, a thief, a, a, a murderous organ donator, and somebody who trades voluntarily and peacefully in the free market, your definition makes no sense and has no moral well, content can you, at all. Can you, can, you somehow, can you somehow explain to me how someone can trade voluntarily on a free market? And how, furthermore, how everybody could be... A, able to enter such a market, thereby making it what would be called a free market. I'm sorry, I'm not sure what your question is. My question is, you need to define voluntarily exchange on a free market. How can you voluntarily exchange something which is not yours without taking it? Well, you, you produce something. Out of what? Out of thin air? Now that's God complex. So you're telling me the existence of God is there. You, can't, you cannot produce something out of thin air. You must produce something from a resource. That resource must come from a source. That right. source must be, must be common, must be something that is shared in common. To have a free market, one must then take a resource that is inherently not theirs from birth. There is no birthright to the world, according to the free market, because then you're talking about private property. What inherits private property? What allows private property in the use of those resources? Those resources must be taken from somewhere. Right. So I, I have a little recorder, right? This little iRiver that I use to record podcasts, right? And so you're saying that I should not own this, uh, or it's not possible for me to, to have worked and to voluntarily exchanged. I mean, because fundamentally, right, the, the, the only property that you fundamentally have is yourself, right? It's your own mind and it's your own body. 
right? So if I go and, and there's some un uninhabited field in the middle of nowhere, I'm going to go and clear that field and I plant some crops. The only thing that I fundamentally have ownership over is my own mind and my own body, which you, of course, completely agree with because you're using your mind and your body to produce arguments, which would be yours. And therefore, you own the arguments, which is why I don't talk to someone else. Right. So the only property that you actually have is your own body and your own mind. Now, the degree to which you produce or create things that didn't exist before based on your own self-ownership is the degree to which you have mastery over the things that you produce. So if I clear some field uh, or drain some swamp and plant some crops, uh, I have some wheat that is only there because of the effort of my labor, and it would not exist in any other form. Like if I go fishing and I pull a, a fish out of the ocean, and then, you know, we can eat the fish. Well, the only reason we can eat the fish is because I went and pulled it out of the ocean. So clearly, I because I have responsibility for my own body uh, and my own mind, uh, which is why we know that criminals should be punished or whatever, because they're morally responsible for who they strangle with their hands or whatever. So if, if something is created or brought into being, you know, like a house or crops or a fish that you can actually eat rather than one that's 20 fathoms down in the ocean, then sure, the person who has, in a sense, produced or created that good, who's turned a tree branch into a bow and arrow, who's created something that is of use that was not in existence beforehand, yeah, of course they should have ownership over that. That, that of course, is, is perfectly natural. Now, but the impossibility of entering into a market and adding profit to those things would lie in that you would have to then continue to take fish, continue to take more fish than you need, continue to take more fish than you have right to. If there are other people fishing, you would have competition. You would have to then find a way to, by force, take the fish that you feel you so rightfully own away from those who are also trying to fish in the same area. Have you, I mean, just, just out of curiosity, because I mean, now, now we're suddenly, you, you've got a whole bunch of fishermen at war with each other. I'm just curious, I mean, have you actually ever studied the history of fisheries um, outside, you know, the government? Or, I'm just curious, because you, you say that, well, because we have f people who fish, you're going to end up with fishermen shooting torpedoes at each other in competition for fish. Um, no, no, no. Like, no have I'm you actually studied I'm, the history of what it is that you're talking about, or are you just kind of pulling words out of some orifice we won't mention? The well, reason I'm, being, I'm, that, that, I'm, that's not how I'm using your. That's not how Excuse me. I'm works. using. Excuse me. Excuse me. I'm using your analogy. I didn't come up with the fish analogy. You came up with the fish. Analogy. No, but you're coming so up with I'm the violence. Reacting. That's not how fishermen no, I, actually work. When fishermen all work on a lake, I mean, just as you can look this up, you can look this up on the internet, you can get books on it, it's really not that hard to find. And you need to do this if you're going to start talking about these topics, really. If you look at the history of fish, when you have fishing, when you have a bunch of people on a lake, they've got a town, a fishing town on a lake, I swear to you, the fishermen do not end up blowing each other up, sabotaging each other's boats and strangling each other in order to get more fish. What they do is they say, well, here's the amount of fish we can catch. Let's have a voluntary quota system and it's enforced, enforced through social ostracism and, you know, just general. This, this is the way it works. Um, the fisheries uh, on the east coast of Canada uh, ran perfectly fine for 400 years until, unfortunately, the government came in and started setting quotas. And the fishermen did not strangle each other, and they did not axe murder each other, and they did not uh, end up with violence. They simply sat down and said, well, in order for us to all sustain this fishery, you know, we're going to have to eat this much, we're going to have to sell this much, we're going to have to leave this much in the ocean so that we have enough fish for next year. That worked perfectly uh, fine for 400 years, and it's worked perfectly fine throughout the world. Unfortunately, things become a problem. When, uh, when governments come in and start screwing around with things. But if you want to start talking about fisheries and violence, I think you need to just read a little about it before you start making up all of this stuff. Okay, um, I'm not making up stuff. I'm replying to your analogy. And okay, I'm going to stop this conversation state... because uh, I'm not enjoying it and I just find it really annoying. And I think the listeners are finding it that way too. So 
Uh, James, do we have anybody else who uh, is, wants to chat about philosophy? Well, I guess while we're waiting for to come back, just a principle or two from the last fellow who called in. Um, and, and it's similar to what I was talking about with the anarcho-communists who called in, I think, two weeks ago, which is, um, I, th I think if you want to talk about, uh, you know, particular industries or areas, I think it's important to have read some real history of this, this kind of stuff. Again, this is just part of the preparation and, uh, and understanding uh, of, of how to debate productively. Uh, and so if you're going to say, well, when one guy starts fishing, another guy's going to start fishing and they're going to end up trying to strangle each other, uh, then um, I, I think you need to, to sort of say, well, okay, that's a theory, right? I have a theory that if fishermen uh, are competing for the same resource, that they will start attacking each other and, and strangling each other. Um, then you need to do some research to find out if that's true or false. Yeah, so, so you just want to, you don't want to live in the world of, of just theory, right? You really, really, really want to focus on the empirical aspects of what it is that you're talking about as a thinker, right? I mean, that to me is, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm the ultimate empiricist in that sense, right? That everything has to go through some sort of empirical verification process. Otherwise, it's just, you know, wind in the air, right? A fart in the wind. And so if you have a theory, that uh, com competition for resources among private citizens will immediately lead or inevitably lead to some sort of war, then you need to look that up. You need to look up the history of, of how fishing was dealt with. In, and it doesn't take long. Right? I mean, this is the beauty of the Internet. Is that The beauty of the Internet is that nobody anymore can be excused for, um, for not having basic facts. Right. I mean, because it's not like you have to go and trek to uh, some library in New York and look up some obscure fishing history from 20 years ago or whatever, everything is so immediately available on the internet that those people who haven't taken the time to look up some basic facts about their theories, to me, are just not worth talking to because they're just not interested in empiricism. And if they're not interested in empiricism, then all we're doing is arguing who likes what kind of flavor of ice cream. That's not a philosophical debate, right? So, uh, and, and also if, if facts don't sway someone, then I'm not going to continue debating, right? So if I, if I say, well, the facts contradict your theory, and it doesn't sort of pause or someone, then I'm not going to continue that debate because uh, it doesn't really, uh, you know, it doesn't really make any sense. Right. So so when I said to the first guy, well, you know, consciousness and complexity result from uh, evolution over time. He comes up with some evolution in the realm of godhood before like that just is not listening to what I'm saying. Right. And uh, the guy who's saying, well, no fishermen will end up attacking each other. And I say that's actually not the history of fishing. Quite the opposite. There was a huge amount of cooperation for the maintenance of public of sort of resources in common by fishermen throughout history. And I could cite it a number of examples. Uh, and that doesn't, you know, that doesn't sway him. Then it's like, okay, well, if we're not going to talk about facts and, and reasoned evidence, then we're not talking about anything, right? It's just a bunch of opinions and I just don't have time for that. I don't want to pretend that that's philosophy, like the guy who says that capitalism applies to both uh, a communist and to uh, a voluntary person in the free market then that's not a definition that makes any sense at all. That's like saying, well, cancer is all, you know, a malevolent cell reproducing illness that will kill you. And also the complete opposite of that at the same time. It's like, well, if, if coercion and voluntarism are both under the same umbrella, then you can't have a debate because it's like, okay, truth is false and false is true and everything in between and everything's black and white and gray. That's debate. It's like, let's not. Right? Scientists would never do that. And I'm not sure why philosophers would bother either. So. All right, Jimmy James, did we come back at all? Hello. All right, well, I think we're having enough technical issues for those who are listening. Uh, you are welcome to drop by fdrurl.com forward slash call in. 
where we can uh, finish up the show uh, on Skype because it looks like we're just having nothing but technical issues here with live stream. So you can go to fdrurl.com forward slash call in one word. You will need to create a board account, but it'll only take a minute or two. We will uh, switch this baby over to Skype. And I do apologize for the uh, the technical issues. I'm not sure what's going on, but we will uh, try and work them out for next week. Uh, thank you for your patience and we will see you over on Skype land. Thank you. All right. Go ahead. Mr. G. Sure. Um, so yeah, I, I, the latest eight page thread or whatever has been the, uh, the vegetarianism thread, which has been interesting and it's been interesting to read it. And I, I just found myself experiencing a lot of irritation around that thread. And there have been a couple of other threads around then too. So the past two weeks, there have been like two or three UPB of vegetarianism threads. Yeah. Um, and I was trying to figure out where the irritation was coming from because I'm totally open to the fact that, that it could be my own uh, past and history with kind of moralizing of opinions and I don't like meat, therefore you're bad and that kind of stuff. And I, I don't think it's necessarily like my own, like I'm defending my own diet because I eat meat like once every week or two, if that, like I'm not a huge meat eater, so I'm not a huge carnivore and just defending my own diet. So I'm, I'm trying to figure out if, if, if anyone else has any thoughts as well or if you have thoughts, Steph, because, I mean, Christina and I in Philadelphia talked about um, diet for a little bit outside in the lobby. And, I mean, I have absolutely no problem with kind of her. It's my personal preference. I don't I don't really like meat very much, so I don't eat it very much. But I just have a bit of a uh, – like more of a, more of a challenge accepting the um, – meat eating is evil and, and, and bad kind of stuff. So I, was I have a, I have a question about uh, vegetarian vegetarianism. Exactly. What is the point of contention? Is it, um, I, I admit I did not read through the thread, but I kind of glanced through it quickly. And the complaint that he seemed to be putting forth was that it's over, uh, suffering. So is that uh, suffering of animals? So is that what the, where the problem revolves around? I'm, I'm not entirely sure, to be honest. Well, I think that's the argument, right, which is that um, uh, sentient animals uh, can suffer, and when we kill them, they don't like it, it's bad, and uh, therefore we should, we should not do it, right? And that the greater the consciousness, uh, the greater that we should uh, avoid uh, killing them uh, for our own culinary satisfaction, those satisfactions can easily be fulfilled through other means, right? You can get protein from, you know, peanut butter and cottage cheese and cheese and stuff like that, right? So, uh, so that you don't need to, uh, to eat uh, meat and it is uh, self-indulgent and it necessitates the killing uh, and the suffering of sentient creatures, right? Not, not just the killing, but also the, um, you know, the way they're all packed in so tightly and don't roam free and, and all that kind of stuff. So I, th I think that's the basic argument that it's, it's an unnecessary cruelty that further dehumanizes us uh, as, as, a, as creatures, right? And if we want to develop our own empathy and sympathy, um, a good place to start is in our treatment of animals. Is that, is that what other, I haven't read that thread in particular, but that's what I've heard before. That sounds right. That sounds, and, and that's not anything that I would particularly disagree with. Like I, I agree with your sentiments in the uh, college, when the college class asked that question. It was like, well, yeah, I think we eat far too much meat, and I think that we'll eat far less meat in a stateless society, and anything we can do to be 
gentler to animals is great. And so I, I have no, I have no problems with that. So I, I, I don't see a huge area of disagreements, a disagreement between me and, and sort of the, the people who are in that thread, but I still find myself with a lot of irritation. I think it might be just with the, um, cause you don't take as absolutist of a stance about meat eating. Like you're not, you don't, point to any of us eating a burger and say, ah, evil, right? <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's not baby eating, right? I mean, it's a, it's a different, different kettle of fish as far as, as I'm concerned. And, and, uh, I, I mean, I have a problem with a, a very sort of explicit and specific focus on animal rights as a whole, because I think that the, the jury is pretty much in, as far as that goes, that cruelty towards animals arises out of cruelty towards children, right? And uh, I think that the argument that we've made, right, is that if you want to have a peaceful, uh, a more peaceful and, and happier world, then you need to treat children better. There's no, there's no point telling people that they're bad for being cruel to animals. Um, that's like saying war is bad. Right? I mean, it, it's just not, it's not very, it's not a very intelligent way of approaching the problem. And, uh, you know, just lecturing and hectoring people, and I don't know if they're doing that, uh, is a problem because it's not understanding the root cause of stuff, right? I mean, I don't just go around saying war is bad. I go around saying that uh, the reason we have wars is because of the externalization of costs through statism. And uh, so that we need, and, and the reason we have statism, in my opinion, is because of uh, the way that um, children are raised. And so I try to really get to the root of the issue and come up with a solution to it not just saying to people, you know, war sucks and we shouldn't do it. Uh, it just doesn't seem to me particularly an intelligent approach. And the reason that I take that approach is simply because I actually want to have an effect on the world. Like, I really want to have an effect on the world, which means I don't just want to lecture people about stuff that's kind of obvious. Of course, nobody is for cruelty to animals, right? I mean, no sane human being says, well, you know, I don't just want a burger. I want a burger from a cow that was slowly tortured, right? I mean, that, that's just not what uh, what people do right so given that nobody wants war um you know and then we have to figure out why wars occur and what's the real root cause of it and i mean we've i've taken the approach that i've taken which will either be right or not or somewhere in between and, and i think that when it comes to cruelty to animals lecturing people isn't going to do anyone any good it's kind of self-indulgent and i think if you really do care about animals then you should really focus strongly i believe on um uh, on, on really, really looking into why animals get treated badly. What kind of human being is it uh, who will, uh, you know, stack chickens in these, you know, god-awful rows and will put uh, veal, uh, put baby cows, you know, milk feed them to the point of serious obesity and stuff them in these tiny uh, containers? Like, what kind of human being does that? And I would assume that it's a human being who was treated like an animal when he was a child. I mean, that would be at least where I'd start. I mean, that would be the end result. And then I would go into all of that because I really do care about stopping it. It's not just a self-indulgent moral crusade where I get to feel superior to people by telling them that what they're doing is bad, right? But I really want to dig in and find out what the actual cause of this is. And I think that uh, if you responsibly do that, um, it's not that hard to figure out that um, uh, cruelty to children, uh, children who've experienced a lot of cruelty tend to be quite cruel. Uh, to animals, right? So I think I think it's just they're just not going very deep into it, and and because of that, I think it's fair to at least be somewhat suspicious of their true motives. Right, right. 
right? That makes sense. Does that make any sense? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, you have to stay curious when you're trying to solve very important problems. You have to stay curious. And I think I think it's very important to not to not just state state the obvious and think that you're really progressing. You know, that that's you know, war is bad. You know, there's those hippie slogans from the sixties, you know, war is bad for children and birds and bees and other living things and so on. Make love, not war. It's like, but those people aren't really against war, in my opinion, right? They're they're you know, they're for having a moral posture. They're not really against war. Because if you're really against something, then you will stop at nothing in your attempt to uncover its true root causes, if that makes any sense. Right, right. And that, and I guess that would be triggering the irritation in me, just like a gut sense that, that that's not all that there is to all this, that it's, it's not just about what's on the surface in these threads. Yeah, I mean, it, to, I mean, I've asked animal rights activists, I don't think ever on this show, but I've asked them in the past, you know, what, what do they believe uh, or, or have they had uh, uh, some knowledge or experience of this, the voluminous studies that link uh, child abuse to cruelty to animals, right? And, and if they have, then I'm, I'm impressed, right? And I say, okay, so, uh, you know, if you want to improve our treatment of animals, then you know, the first thing you would want to do is help people to understand the relationship between child abuse and animal mistreatment, right? I mean, I think that would be, you know, and, and that to me is, is a great, uh, people who do that, I think are, are very responsible and, and very, very good in my opinion. So, um, uh, the people who don't do that, um, I don't know. Uh, to me, it's just harder to, uh, to take that, uh, to take that kind of thing seriously. Because that's an easy one, right? I mean, every everybody who's got any knowledge, I mean, knows that child abuse has some influence on mistreatment of animals, or that you know somebody who tortures animals as a kid is probably not going to grow up to be a really fantastic uh, uh, person or whatever. So, uh, so that to me would be the first place to start. Now, if they get angry and upset that I'm bringing up a clear causal relationship between child abuse and uh, the mistreatment of animals, then I don't really think that they're into protecting animals. I mean, it just I just, I don't, right? I mean, maybe they are, but that's certainly not what I would think. I think they're into being morally superior, you know, like, uh, you know, like those people who go around lecturing you that stuff you buy has been produced by um, underpaid labor, right? And you say, well, what is the definition of underpaid? I mean, everyone thinks that they're underpaid, right? Uh, and what is the history, the economic history of the countries that you're talking about and so on. And if they don't know any of that stuff, then I just assume that they're just, you know, they're just walking around using, quote, ethics to, to feel, to make other people feel inferior and to feel superior themselves and, you know, all that kind of kind of nonsense. That, that's, self-righteous. You know, sadly common. Yeah, just self-righteous and, you know, I don't eat meat, so I'm morally superior and I don't buy this and, and my, my stuff is all free range and I, I shop for stuff locally and blah, 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 blah. Yeah, you know, it's like the people who drive electric cars and have never looked into the economics of it and realized that electric cars are, in many, many ways, much more damaging to the environment than gasoline-powered cars. Um, they're just—it's just a—it's just a, a form of kind of moral superiority, uh, and and that's what they're really into, not into the protection of the environment or the protection of of children or whatever, or the protection of animals. Right, because if you're into the protection of animals, the first place you need to look is the mistreatment of children, and if they're not, and if they resist that then they're just not really into it. That's, that's, 
you know, it's like a guy saying, "I last thing I want to do is get is 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 get lung cancer, so uh, I'm going to smoke another cigarette." I mean, then he's just it doesn't match, right? Right, right. Well, steps. Then I have a question because um, I actually don't think um, I'm vegan just to let you know where I stand on it, but I don't think that it's an issue of um, morality like UPB, like uh, because I kind of with the gut sense thing, I don't think that I would ever feel comfortable with somebody being having force used against them to prevent them from eating meat. Um, mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. a lot of the arguments. Um, People like your answer just now to it was less of in the moral argument and more in like the practical if you want to stop the animals, but not so much with um, in the area of morality. Um, and we've I've been talking with this with a couple people um, the last couple of weeks, and it sort of seems like um, because the question we had was like why wouldn't the NAP apply to animals? And I'm not sure if this is the right way to go, but it sort of seemed like if if animals don't own them themselves, like, cause that's where the non-aggression comes from is cause it's in a, it's going against like your property, like your body sort of thing. So if they don't own themselves, then it, it would be okay to aggress against animals, like murder them for food. Um, but I'm not sure how that would, how you could define pro- how def- property rights would be defined so that animals would be excluded from that. Or if even that's the right path to go down. Um, but it just seemed to me like all the arguments we were giving were not, in the in the moral nature, but more of the practical, like how to achieve the end, rather than no. That's I mean, you're you're absolutely right, and that's just because I've I've made the arguments a number of times before, and I'll just touch on them briefly here. But uh, animals don't have the capacity to conceptualize; they don't have free will. They don't have the capacity to compare their actions against the theoretical ideal, right? So that you can't have a social contract with an animal. The reason that the NAP doesn't apply to animals is that animals don't apply to the NAP, right? You can't say to the lion who's hungry and who's stalking you through the bush, um, I will buy you some cereal to eat uh, and you don't have to eat me, right? So so uh, animals are predators. Uh, and again, I'm not saying cows, right? But in general, right? I mean, this is, this is the thing. Uh, animals will initiate the use of force to get what they want, right? And a lion who's hungry will go and eat a gazelle, right? And will initiate force to do so and won't go to a vegetarian restaurant and all that kind of stuff because they're instinctual based and they just do what they do and they're very violent, right? There's a lot of (laughs) violence in nature. It's not moral violence because they don't have the capacity to do other than what they're doing. And so so they they can't enter into a social contract. They can't trade. uh, they, They have no property rights because they have no concept of property because they don't have... You know, self-ownership means self-responsibility, and we accept that animals are not responsible, morally responsible for their own behavior, right? That's why we don't put lions on trial for murdering gazelles, right, or, or crocodiles on trial for murdering zebras, because we understand that they're not morally responsible for their own actions, because they cannot compare their actions to a theoretical ideal called morality. And we also understand this in the realm of certain people who would be criminally insane, right? Like, they just don't have the capacity to know the difference between right and wrong, and and all of that. And we treat them differently than a criminal who's, you know, hides the body and has motive and all that kind of does it for profit or whatever. So animals simply cannot be included in the social contract um, and uh, are not morally responsible, do not have self-ownership from a moral standpoint at all, and uh, and therefore are not covered by the, the non-aggression principle because they, they can't understand the non-aggression principle because they're not, because um, they're not, 
rational creatures in the way that human beings are. So, I mean, there's more to it, of course, but that's just the brief uh, stuff that I've talked about before. Uh, that's that's the moral argument that I would use against it. Now, does that mean that we can then go around torturing animals? Well, I would say not. Uh, uh, and I would say not in particular because um, torturing animals makes people worse, right? I mean, if you go around torturing animals, you know, like George Bush used to blow up frogs with firecrackers, and now he's blowing up Iraqis with B-52s, right? So there is a, uh, you know, it's a dangerous thing uh, to do. It's a bad thing to do. Um, and uh, uh, it is gratuitously ugly and violent and wrong and unnecessary. And uh, so I think that that, I mean, it certainly would have no problem uh, with that uh, being part of uh, a moral system. But yeah, I mean, we, can, we can't include animals because they, they, they don't have a consciousness of the social contract or alternatives to dispute resolution other than eating each other. Right. And like, I completely understand that the animals cannot, um, they can't participate at all in the moral contract because they don't have any understanding or ability to conceptualize that sort of thing. Um, and, but the, the, like, I don't understand, um, or what I get confused about is that we are capable of that. So, um, is, why isn't it that because we are capable of that, we can apply it to them or does both parties involved have to be able to um like know what's going on um because then the well the definition of a contract is that both parties know what's going on right right I mean, that's why i can't make a i can't make a loan arrangement with my house plant right okay um and then i'm not i'm not trying to be like like I know. No, no, go for it. Yeah. yeah okay. This question's always kind of like trollish, but I just—it's the only way I can really visualize the principle. But uh, maybe, uh, maybe it's just the biology argument. But because then it sort of seems like when you have people who are mentally uh, retarded or something, they also don't understand um, the. They, maybe they they're in a position where they can't conceptualize the same sort of thing, but they do seem to fall under the NAP. And I'm just maybe that's just falls into the like the gray areas of biology, but I'm not. That's something that always comes up for me then when I get to that point. Well, yeah, I mean, but I mean, you'd have to be really, really, really retarded to approach an animal level of intelligence. Right. I mean, you you would have to be like most retarded people, IQ of 70 or 60 or whatever. But but to approach a level of animal intelligence, I mean, you'd have to be like so severely retarded that it would be just like one in a billion. And uh, and and those people like if if let's say. Um, there was somebody who was as retarded as a lion, right? <laughs> not to insult lions, but if somebody, and remember, please, if you're not talking, if you could mute, um, if, if somebody is as retarded as a lion and every time that that man gets hungry, he goes and, and eats a baby, uh, we would have no problem, I think, uh, restraining that person, initiating violence against him, or at least retaliatory violence against him and keeping him out of society forever, right? That he would not be covered now. Would we necessarily go and eat him? Well, of course not, right? Just because that would make no sense fundamentally. But um, uh, if somebody was that retarded, they would have no possibility of, of uh, that retarded and that violent, they would have no possibility of uh, uh, being part of the social contract. And I don't think anybody who would be remotely morally responsible would have any problem restricting permanently the the movements of that that person right because they had no moral understanding of the consequences of their actions and would go out and eat babies uh, whenever they got hungry and could not you know be restrained or taught differently uh, that person would simply have no liberty within society of course right okay yeah that makes sense to me um and those are pretty much just the questions that i had around it 
at this point. So thank you for your answers. Right. Now, I appreciate that. And to me, the, the distinction is between uh, uh, consciousness, uh, rational consciousness and non-rational consciousness. And the animal rights yeah. people, and, you know, maybe maybe they'll turn out to be right. I doubt it. But they want to extend that to say, well, it's uh, it's uh, uh, all forms of consciousness. And, uh, uh, and you get to the silly extremes where, you know, you can't eat a carrot because it's murder, right? And that, that just, to me, just seems inherently silly. Uh, and, and even if we accept that carrot is murder, let's at least try and save human beings before we try and save animals. Because you, you, can't, you can't save animals without saving human beings. That's been my fundamental argument from the very beginning of this sort of issue. You cannot save animals without saving human beings. You cannot get human beings to act more kindly towards animals or even to be vegetarian if that's your preference, um, you, you simply can't get human beings to be kinder to animals until human beings are kinder to human beings, right? specifically in the form of better parenting. So, uh, so that would be my argument that it's fine to focus on, on better protection of animals. To me, that's great. But what you nearly really need to do to achieve that is to focus on the better protection and care for children. And that's how you will achieve it. And there's no other way that it can be achieved. Oh, yeah. And I just, I just want to say too, I think that's a, it's a better formulation uh, that we can't save animals till we save uh, humans uh, because the one that you were using before and the people have said is uh, we shouldn't talk about animal rights until like we deal with the bigger things, which I think is also valid, but it sort of is like, well, let's, it sort of like is really dismissive of the whole thing. Um, and that, that was kind of annoying to me um, just cause it's like, well, we, we can, t we should be able to talk about anything. It's not like I'm only, talking about animal rights or anything like that and that's my sole focus but i think that it's it's uh it's definitely more understandable like we can't we just can't save animals till we save humans so that uh for, that doesn't strike me as annoying or as um like irritating to me well but uh, the reason that i've said that and you know again maybe i'm wrong but i'll give the argument you can let me know if it makes any sense the reason that i've said that it's because to me, animal rights activists, and not just animal rights activists, but lots of people, but certain kinds of animal rights activists, they're like a bunch of people on one side of a mountain. And they're saying, we desperately, desperately, desperately need to get over the mountain. That is the most important thing for us or whatever, right? And, uh, and I say, well, to get over the mountain, you need some boots, at least, right? That's the very least that you need, is, is because you desperately want to get over the mountain and you're barefoot, right? And the mountain is snowy and jagged and blah, blah, blah. You get frostbite and die. So you need the first thing you need to get is boots. If you don't have boots, you can't get over the mountain. And they say, well, we don't want boots. We only want to get over the mountain. And I say, no, 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 you can't get over the mountain if you don't have the boots. And they say, but we want to, all we want to do, we don't want to talk about getting boots. We only want to talk about getting over the mountain. And it's like, no, 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 you don't understand. You can't get over the mountain unless you get the boots, right? So you, the reason I say stop talking about getting over the mountain and start talking about getting the boots is because you simply can't get over the mountain without the boots. It's never going to happen, never going to work. And that's the analogy, of course, right? If you want to save animals, then save children. And you say, well, we don't want to talk about saving children. It's like, well, then there's no point talking about saving animals. There's no point talking about going over the mountain if you're not willing to get some boots. All right, that makes sense. And uh, thanks again for addressing my comments. Oh, you're absolutely welcome. And uh, of course, if you think of uh, objections, which are always more than possible, feel free to uh, to uh, to let me know. All right. Did we have any other 
Uh, Greg, how did that uh, how did it all sit with you? That sat that very well with me. I that definitely uh, explained a lot of the irritation I was feeling, and uh, to my satisfaction, I feel a lot uh, better about that, how I was feeling with those threats. And and it shows up in a number of other ways, right? So people say, well, we should we should get rid of war, and it's like, well, here's here's my argument as to you know if we have to get rid of the state in order to get rid of war. And they say, I don't want to talk about the state. I only want to talk about getting rid of war. Then we're right back to you need boots to get over the mountain. And it shows a lot of different places, right? And when people say all they want to do is get over the mountain and then they wave you away with irritation when you point out the need for boots, I think it's fair to say, I don't think you really want to get over the mountain. I think you want to talk about going over the mountain. I don't think you really want to get over the mountain because you're not able to disprove my argument that you need boots, but you're also not going and looking for boots. You're just talking about how important it is to get over the mountain, right? And, and that to me, those kinds of people are really annoying. Because they waste a lot of people's time, and it's all about their own ego and about moral pomposity than it is about actually achieving something. Right, right. Yeah, I think that metaphor was just fantastic, by the way, and it's so applicable to so many things that come up on the board and so applicable to situations where, where we just we don't really want to talk about what it's not about. And I think that, that metaphor makes it very clear, and uh, it was a great great. Well, and that's what we've been doing from the beginning, right? Because people say, I want to be free. I want to get over the mountain, right? And we say, well, you can't be free if you don't have truth, clarity, and some degree of virtue in your personal relationships, right? You need boots to get over the mountain. You need to be free in your personal relationships in order to be free in the world, first and foremost. And you can't, like, if you have political freedom and you're enslaved to your personal relationships, to abusive or corrupt or false or destructive personal relationships, if those are in your life, then you won't really be free, right? So here's something you can do. Go get some boots, right? Go talk to people about virtue in your life and listen to the responses. And uh, people are like, no, no, no. I want to end the Fed, right? <laughs> it's like, no, no, no. You can't end the Fed if you can't speak about truth and virtue in your personal relationships. And uh, people say, well, I don't want to deal with any of that, right? Then to me, that's the same thing as I want to get over the mountain. Don't talk to me about boots, right? And the, the, the other kinds of people, the, the guy who showed up in the, the call today, right, who, who just, you know, wanted to be right, you know, it didn't trouble him that his definitions were completely contradictory and, and so on, right? And so it's like, okay, well, if all you want to be is right, I'm not going to pretend to debate with you because I'm not about being right. I'm about trying to be as honest and as accurate as possible. So I'm not going to debate with somebody where it's a domination, ego, nonsense, self-aggrandizement exercise because it's not... That's not, this is a philosophy show, right? This isn't a serve someone's ego show, right? Well, and just by the by, I think another interesting point about that guy who called in today was that he wasn't, he wasn't making any focused points. He was just tossing shit out and hoping that some of it would stick. Like, like, like yeah. I said at the beginning of this little bit, it's just like he went from one topic to the next, like five different insane ramblings without any real cohesion. Like just he went move, 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 move on until then hoping that something would stick with you. And he did say search for God, I think, and then he changed it to search for knowledge of God or something like that. And, and I just like, okay, well, switch definitions and all that. It's like, eh, you know, who's got time? Like, he didn't seem to be very concerned with consistency. <laughs> that's a nice way of putting it. Yeah, I think, I think that's fair. But yeah, that, that, that satisfied me with regards to the vegetarian thing. Yeah. 
and it's good. It's good. Again, you know, your your instincts are smarter than than all of us combined, right? As far as that goes. So you know, I certainly do compliment you for um, for following your your thoughts on the on this matter and trying to figure out what's going on. I mean, I think it's I think it's very important. We we are you know innately sensitive to to hypocrisy and to pomposity. I think, uh, and I think that's really really good uh, to to try and figure it out. All right. Does anybody else have any other questions or comments or anything that it would like to bring up? I will post one, let's see, maybe one baby photo in the chat window. Last chance. Last chance for comments. Last chance for questions. All right. Well, thank you, everybody, for joining us this uh, beautiful Sunday afternoon. And uh, I hope that uh, you all have a completely wonderful week. And uh, thanks again to the people who participated uh, in the um, entrepreneur stuff from, uh, uh, from last week. Uh, that was great. I really do appreciate that. We got a very, very good, I think, uh, a very good uh, show out of it, which I will post later today. And uh, we, will, uh, we will talk to you next week, if not before. Thank you, everybody, so much.